Is baptism necessary for our salvation? Carla Broussard is next. Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I'm Cy Kelly, your host, and I have to admit, as a cradle Catholic, as a Catholic from the time I was, before I was born, I'm pretty sure I was Catholic uh, in the womb, it never would have occurred to me to ask the question, is baptism necessary for salvation? So this is one of those reasons, uh, where one of those opportunities where someone presents a challenge to the faith that you wouldn't even have even thought of, and it deepens your understanding of that certain aspect of your faith. This is one of the challenges that's made against Catholicism and Catholic belief and Catholic practice by our Baptist uh, and other Protestant um, uh, fellow Christians. The challenge being, well, there's some things in the Bible that would suggest baptism is not necessary for salvation. So we asked Carlo Roussard about that, and here's what he had to say. Okay, so um, uh, I guess the main objection is that um, that uh, people seem to be saved who are not baptized. Right. Yep. <laughs> I, I guess, no, that's well I guess put. that's the I, I don't know any clearer way to put it. Like, right. So, uh, but we do say, you like, be baptized to be saved. Right. So this seems like a contradiction. Help me out with it. Yeah. So the, the church does teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. And as we go through our conversation here, we'll qualify what the church means by necessary. We don't mean an absolute necessity okay. such that one who is not baptized is automatically going to hell. What the church means by it's necessary for salvation, as it points out in paragraph 1257, is that it is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. For those to whom it has not been proclaimed, right, the catechism goes on and makes this statement, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he himself is not bound by the sacraments. In other words, God can administer the effects of the sacrament of baptism to those to whom the gospel has not been proclaimed, okay. and they're not responsible for their ignorance of this revelation. So for those to whom it has been proclaimed, and they have the possibility to ask for it, it is necessary because we claim it is a part of Christian revelation. And so in that sense, it's necessary. But to get specifically to the challenge that's offered to us that you've posed, which is a challenge, by the way, that I meet in my book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. Oh, yeah, this is, is one of the topics. That, that is correct. Yeah. And that is, well, the Bible seems to reveal some people getting saved without baptism. So yeah. the key example, sort of the go-to text here is Acts chapter 10, verses 45 through 48. And that's where we read that story of how Cornelius and the Gentiles receive a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they begin speaking in tongues in very similar and performing actions, right, visible activities very similar to the apostles on the day of Pentecost, particularly speaking in tongues. And it's subsequent to that that Peter baptizes Cornelius and the, and his Gentile friends. Oh, so how can you have the Spirit and not be saved? Then? That is correct. So okay. yeah. there's a few ways that we can meet this challenge size. So first of all, notice the challenge assumes right off the bat, because Cornelius and his Gentile friends received the Holy Spirit, therefore they're saved. Right. But we one possible way to meet this challenge 
for apologetical purposes is to challenge that assumption and say, well, wait a minute, just because somebody receives an outpouring of the Spirit, that doesn't necessarily mean they are saved. Because we have evidence in Scripture where the Spirit is given for other purposes besides salvation. So as I articulate in my book, you could use the example in Exodus chapter 31, verse 3, where the Spirit of God is given to Bezalel, Bezalel, (laughs) I might be butchering the pronunciation there, but Bezalel, son of Uri. That That was a big problem with Bezalel. (laughs) Everyone was like, like, come on, people get this right. Yeah, so the Spirit (laughs) of God is given to Bezalel, son of Uri. Why? To devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every craft, verses 4 through 5 there. So notice it's given, the Spirit is given for artistic skill here, mm-hmm. not salvation. You could also see it, you also see in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is given for special strength. That's exemplified in the life of Samson in Judges chapter 14, verse 6. It's also, the Spirit is also given to empower one with a special strength. For leadership, as we see Joshua, the Spirit of God is in Joshua, empowering him to lead the people of God, according to Numbers 27, 18. And so the Spirit of God can be given for other purposes besides salvation. Now, when we come back to the story of Cornelius and his Gentile friends, we can see that it's reasonable to conclude that the Spirit of God would be given for some specific purpose and not necessarily salvation, and that is to convince the circumcised, those Jewish Christians who were teaching that one must be a Jew first, hold fast to all the Mosaic precepts, in order to be a true Christian. I see, yeah. And so it's reasonable to say that the Spirit would be given here to enable, to have this visible manifestation to convince the circumcised, the circumcised, these Jewish Christians, that the Gentiles do not have to be a Jew first in order to be saved, right? right. Or in order to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. And we see this within the context. The context of the passage seems to suggest this because we're told that when the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and the other Gentiles present there, the, quote, believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because because the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, verse 45. So it's given simply to convince the circumcised these Jewish Christians, that one did not have to hold fast to the Old Testament precepts Mm -hmm. in order to be a Christian, okay? Okay. And then, and the key here is they knew this, the reason why they knew that the Spirit of God was given was that they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So you could ask the question, well, why would the speaking in tongues be necessary in order to convince that they have the Spirit of God, right? Why this visible manifestation? Well, the visible manifestation is ordered to convincing the circumcised that the Gentiles do not have to hold fast to the Mosaic precepts in order to be a member of God's family, to be a, a member of the fold here, of the Christian fold. And so the Spirit of God could be given for some distinct purpose other than salvation. That's one possible way that you could meet this challenge apologetically and 
and diffuse the the force of the challenge. So uh, let me give you another challenge then, because this one uh, is specifically connected with St. Paul, who's, uh, and, and so I guess the challenge would go like this, how could the Catholic Church teach baptism is necessary for salvation if Paul tells us, and this is from the first letter of the uh, Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 17, that Christ did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Yes, that's a very good challenge, and I also meet that one in my book as well in meeting the Protestant challenge. But just real quick, before we go to that, yeah. let me just say concerning the Cornelius passage, Okay. notice how I said that was only one way to meet that challenge. Okay. But we could, as Catholics, concede that Cornelius and his friends are being saved prior to receiving baptism. So yeah. if we concede okay. that they are being saved prior to receiving baptism, that doesn't pose a threat to the Catholic position, because as we already said at the outset of our conversation here, Sai, the Church acknowledges that God is not bound by his sacraments. Right. We can affirm oh, I see. So, right. baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom it is revealed and those who have the possibility to ask for it. But we can also affirm that God is not bound by his sacraments, and he can administer the graces of the sacrament in other ways outside the boundaries of the sacrament itself. And given the circumstances that we've already articulated here, like, hey, these Jewish Christians need to be convinced convinced in a public way that the Gentiles can now be saved and enter into the fold, so God's going to give his spirit and save them and give them the effects of baptism in this extraordinary circumstance. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. Peter knew that the Gentiles could enter into the fold, but he received that revelation privately. Oh, I see, yeah. Cornelius knew, but he only received it privately, both in Acts chapter 10. And so now there's a need for a public revelation that the Gentiles do not have to be a Jew first in order to be a Christian and be saved. And so you have the visible manifestation of the Spirit. And so even if we concede, which... In the theological tradition, in the common way of interpreting this passage, it is the case that the church acknowledges, Christians have acknowledged that Cornelius and the Gentiles are being saved here prior to receiving baptism. That doesn't pose a threat to the Catholic position because the Catholic position allows for these sorts of extraordinary circumstances where God can administer the graces of the sacrament even without baptism. We call this either explicit or implicit desire for baptism. So that's the sort of finish up that challenge with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. That's an important clarification. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't want to leave it hanging there. Paul didn't get sent to baptize. That's right. He's an apostle. Yeah, and notice too, you know, our Protestant friends who appeal to this passage will emphasize what Paul says, I did not come to baptize but to preach the gospel. So it's not only that he was not sent to baptize, but also our Protestant friends will argue Paul seems to be disassociating baptism from the gospel. In other words, the gospel—let me reverse this—baptism is not essential to the gospel. Oh, I see. Because Paul seems to be juxtaposing the two, right? Right. Coming to baptize— No, no, not that. I've come to preach the gospel. In other words, the gospel doesn't contain the necessity of baptism. Right. right. So that's the challenge. So how do we respond? Well, notice this. The first way we can meet this challenge, Sai, is to, to notice how the challenge seems to confuse the duty to administer the rite of baptism with baptism being essential to the gospel. So let's say for argument's sake, I concede that Paul was not sent to baptize. All that tells me 
is that Paul was not sent to administer the rite of baptism. Yeah. Well, it can be that Paul was not sent to administer the rite of baptism, and baptism still be essential to the gospel message. Sure, yeah. Right? It would just mean and he had a vocation to do one thing and not the other. That's right. And somebody else was required to administer the rite of baptism, right? Right. So just because he says, I have not, sent, I have not been sent to baptize, it doesn't follow from that. That baptism is not essential to the gospel, because you can still have baptism be essential to the gospel, mm-hmm. and Paul just not be the one to administer the rite of baptism. Sure. All right. So that's the first way we can meet that challenge and diffuse the force of the challenge. Now, secondly, as I point out in my book, I would suggest that Paul is using hyperbole here. And he's using hyperbole, like when he says, I have not been sent to administer the, uh, to administer baptism. He's using hyperbole to emphasize two things, as I suggest in my book. It doesn't matter by whom you're baptized. Okay. And secondly, his apostolic role is not restricted to administering baptism, but also involves the preaching of the gospel, and that's what's most important. So that he's using hyperbole, I would argue we know that because Jesus tells the apostles in Matthew 28, 20, go out and baptize and make disciples. And Paul is a legitimate apostle. The resurrected Lord appealed to him. So is Paul not subject to that commission to go and baptize, right? right? So obviously he wouldn't be saying, no, I can't go and baptize, because Jesus told him to go and baptize, right? Yeah, right. Being a part of the apostolic 12, uh, being a part of the apostolic college. And then Paul acknowledges that he actually baptized Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. So is he like disobeying Christ's command to not baptize. <laughs> right, right. It's clear I, he didn't get the command, don't baptize. Right, right. Yeah. Because he I, actually baptized. And I don't think right. we want to say he's like disobeying Jesus' command. Here, no. Right? right? So that would be evidence that he's using hyperbole. But what's the meaning of the hyperbolic speech? Okay. And I would suggest it doesn't matter by whom you're baptized. That's the message that Paul is trying to get across with using this hyperbole here. See, Paul's con- when you look in the context, Paul's concern is factionous activity among the Christians in the church in Corinth. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no dissension among you. Well, that implies there is dissension, right? Yes. What's that dissension? He tells us in verses 11 through 12, it's been reported to me that there's quarreling among you, and some are saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas. Now, why were they saying that? Why were they oh, that's associating a misunderstanding of baptism, isn't that's it? That's right. Why they, were they yeah. associating themselves with all these different guys? Well, check it out in verses 13 through 14. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, let alone anyone should say that you were baptized in my name. That's a clue to why they were having this factionist activity. They were associating themselves with the with the minister Who by whom they were baptized. Right. And so Paul is saying, knock it off, guys. In response to this, he says, for, like in response to all this factionist activity, you're associating yourself with Apollos and Cephas because they baptized you, right. for Christ did not send me to baptize. In other words, what's important is not whether I baptized you is right. Paul's message here. What's important is the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ and the merits which were applied in baptism, right? right. That's what's important. It's not whether I baptized you or, Paul, uh, or Apollos or Cephas. Your Christian identity is not determined by the minister who baptized you. 
Right. That is what Paul is getting at here, and he's using hyperbole to connote or convey that message. So 1 Corinthians 1.17 in no way poses a threat to the Catholic understanding of the necessity of baptism, that necessity being applied to those to whom it is revealed and those who have the possibility to ask for it. So sometimes people will say then, well, the Catholic Church has changed its teaching to say that people can be saved now who aren't baptized. We used to say the only way was absolutely baptism, but that's not really true. We've, no, no. Always I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, has several places in the corpus of his writings where he's talking, where he articulates an explicit and implicit desire for yeah. baptism, and Aquinas would argue that God will see to it, because he's operating on the idea that explicit faith is necessary for salvation, like to explicitly believe in divine revelation, right? Yeah. That God exists, and and also to the implicit, revel- and then implicitly that Christ is the fullness of the revelation. But Aquinas argues that in extraordinary circumstances, God will see to it that a person either has a preacher come to them, preaching to them that God exists, or the God is going to have the individual is going to have some sort of intuitive knowledge that God exists, and then have to assent or reject. Right yeah. now, all the church says is that God, in ways known only to Him, will save those who, by no fault of their own, are ignorant of the gospel and pursuing the truth and living in accord with that truth, responding to the actual graces given to them. And so, in the tradition, we find that. It is true that whatever grace a person is saved by outside the visible boundaries of the church is saved by the graces that come from Jesus the head and his body, the church. And so this is why we can say no salvation outside of the church. Just like we can say no one is saved apart from Jesus Christ, we can say no one is saved apart from the Catholic Church. Whether that's going to be done in a visible way or invisible way is according to God's providential plan, but that it can be a salvation by way of the graces flowing from the church in an invisible way, even though separated visibly, that's a possibility. But if somebody says to me as a Christian, well, how do I—I've heard about this Jesus stuff. How do? I, how am I saved? It's—the thing I should say to them is, b- believe the gospel and be baptized. That is correct, and that's, that's what Jesus came and said, repent and believe, right? Yeah. And uh, in Mark 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's what Jesus said. And we see in Paul's ministry, when he proclaims Jesus, they believe. And what do they do after that belief? He goes and baptizes them. So it's the belief in Christ that involves getting baptized. Because Jesus, a part of that initial proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ, involves the new birth by water and spirit. That's part of the proclamation. So when somebody responds in faith, and in this stage of preparation for justification, we would call it an imperfect faith in ordinary circumstances, where somebody actually, it's a supernatural gift, as St. Thomas Aquinas articulates, but it's not animated by charity yet. So it's not a justifying faith, it's an imperfect faith, but nevertheless supernatural, where one responds to that initial proclamation and says, yes, I believe, and then with that initial proclamation involved, the new birth by water and spirit, so one will respond and say, yes, I want to be born again by water 
water and spirit, namely baptism. And the Catholic Church teaches that it's in that baptismal rite, in the application of baptism, is where one will receive justifying faith, where one is initially justified with charity. What a great gift. Amen to that. Everything given to you in this tiny little ceremony, but still everything. It's of infinite value. Uh, Thanks, Carla. Hey, thank you, Cy. God bless. Uh, First time St. Peter goes out and preaches after Pentecost, he gives all that great preaching, and then the the Jewish people assembled around the temple area. What are we to do, my brothers? You know, what are we to do about this news that we've heard? Repent and be baptized. Uh, That's what Peter tells them. Uh, for your for salvation, uh, baptism is necessary. So thanks to Carlo Broussard for uh, helping us walk through that. I, I think we're going to have to have Carlo come in and do every single sacrament with us at some point. I know that we've got him coming up on a very soon uh, future date. He's going to talk about the Eucharist with us. But baptism opens the door. Baptism is the door we walk through, as a matter of fact, to be saved. And uh, everyone, every single person is called to repent and be baptized. And that's our job is to share that. If we don't believe that, we don't really have a mission. But we do have a mission. Our mission is to go out to all the nations and uh, call people to repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Hey, we love it when you send us an email. Please do that. You can send it to focusatcatholic.com, focusatcatholic.com. Any ideas you've got, they're welcome. Also, like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. That helps to grow this podcast. And if you're listening on a podcast, say Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you might listen to your podcast, if you subscribe, then you'll be notified when new episodes uh, come out. And uh, we'd like to notify you because we think we're, we're kind of proud of the work we do here. We'd like to share it with you. If you like our work, you can also sponsor our work. You can help us financially by going to give catholic.com give catholic.com and support us there this is catholic answers focus i'm cy kellett your host we'll see you next time right here god willing on catholic answers focus